Good morning, Memphis. Thank you for spending some of your Saturday morning with me. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So recently, we've seen a few major headlines in immigration news. Um, so the Biden administration is aiming to process and release migrant families arriving at the border seeking asylum more quickly. Within 72 hours is the goal uh, by converting detention center, detention facilities. Um, we also had a recent Supreme Court ruling in the case of Clemente Avelino Pareda that will likely make it much more difficult for immigrants to avoid deportation. And then there has also been an increase in the number of unaccompanied minor children being held in shelters at the border. So to help us think through some of the ways that immigration policy is being applied today, but also change in this current environment, I have joining me this morning, Dr. Felicia Arriaga. Dr. Arriaga is an assistant professor of sociology in the criminology concentration at Appalachian State University. Her research expertise is in race and ethnicity, immigration and crimigration, which we'll talk more about this morning. And she has a forthcoming book entitled The Unintended Consequences of Crimigration, Ice Governance and Justice in, new destination, in a New Destination Community. Welcome, Dr. Felicia Ariaga. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yes, absolutely. I'm delighted to have you here with us this morning. And I love that answer of like, I'm just doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, let me, it's like, we, I don't know how much time we have to go over how I'm actually doing. So I'm doing okay. I got my vaccine today. So, um, you know, we're, we're moving on as if uh, maybe by the end of this year, we'll be able to be in person again. I'll be able to go to academic conferences, which I, I don't know if I ever thought I would miss them as much as I do now. <laughs> Um, but excited to catch up with all of my friends when we're able to uh, in the near future. Yes, absolutely. I feel you. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, I never thought I would miss academic conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's the world we're in now. And you know, shout out to you for getting that first vaccine. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, something that I've been sort of thinking about, just thinking about how it impacts my family. Um, some of my family members are immigrants. And so um, just thinking about how I think the rollout of the vaccine as well as just um, COVID-19 has uh, really impacted our communities, I think has been something um, that's always sort of on my mind, especially trying to do this research and then thinking about when COVID-19 has appeared and unfortunately detention centers. Um, some of my newer research focuses on looking at COVID-19 in jails across the state of North Carolina. Um, so very much sort of trying to do what I can in this moment, especially so I can go back out there and support our community members um, and make sure that I'm not uh, giving them COVID-19. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, you know, you bring up such an important point thinking about how even immigrant communities are thinking about the vaccine and that extra layer of hesitancy, not just around vaccinations, but also interacting with people who might be seen as agents of the state as well. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that that's what unfortunately we've seen, right, is that um, 
if the infrastructure to support our communities wasn't there before COVID-19, it's definitely been sort of, um, I think, piecemeal responses. And so um, I think at least in North Carolina, we've seen that like the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services has recently brought on more support to do some intentional outreach uh, to the mostly like Latinx immigrant community um, because that was not something they think was part of their focus initially. And so now we've sort of seen the rollout of these like pretty intentional like regional conversations with community groups. Um, they've done some like pretty extensive regranting to community-based organizations to help them with prevention um, services. So it's just been really interesting, I think, to see, unfortunately, whatever wasn't in place before, I'm hoping that we can continue, right? I think about that, um, especially in this moment of um, COVID-19 has is, is definitely shown us what hasn't been working, mm -hmm. uh, but I think has also at least opened up some opportunities for think about to, for us to think about um, what can we do differently, right? So, um, I mean, the stimulus checks, that's like one aspect, right? It's like, oh, okay, cool. We can get $1,400 um, every now and then. That would probably be super helpful for a lot of folks. Um, I, I think that there's just opportunities for us to really think through this, especially with some of the jail research that we've been doing, um, really looking at too, folks being uh, released early for various reasons, like, right, that's something that um, when we go back to quote unquote normal, right, that's something that I think we can definitely advocate for more of. Um, and that's, I think, one way that I've at least been trying to be hopeful in this moment when I think so much of um, the sort of last year, at least, um, has been, I think, pretty um, traumatic for lots of folks. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, but I love that point that you really emphasize about how we've seen um, different policies change or different approaches change because of COVID, unfortunately, but hopefully that those positive changes will continue in whatever a post-COVID right. world looks like, especially I think around, you know, early release or even changing in how we think about bail. Um, right. Um, I think would be some really positive and impactful changes to hopefully, you know, hold on to, you know, post-COVID. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and also thinking about just, you know, vaccination within um, jail populations as well and thinking about what that might look like, you know, moving forward as the vaccine continues to be rolled out as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's like one of our bigger interests. We just finished round two of our data collection. And so we asked um, in this round a bit more on like the vaccination plan. Um, I think, unfortunately, we were seeing um, when we sort of started this in May of last year, uh, what we were finding is that a lot of the jails really didn't have like extensive plans, um, especially to separate folks who maybe were coming in, um, newly incarcerated folks. Um, I think the prison system um, has sort of responded a little bit differently um, just because of, I think, the way that it's managed, right? Um, we'll get into this, I'm sure, later on, but jails, at least in North Carolina, the majority of the country are run by sheriffs. And so sheriffs uh, treat them as like sort of their own kingdoms, right? So they can do whatever they want. I don't think that they're the best at taking directives from folks. And I think that that's where we see so much of the like ability to become immigration enforcement officers um, is because there isn't necessarily this mandate um, across the states for them to do anything differently, right? And I think that that's what we've seen um, in the South in particular, um, Tennessee has a few sort of cases where we've seen this and where sheriffs have been super, um, I think, um, have been not sort of willing to move or to change any of their patterns. Uh, we've seen sort of similar things in North Carolina. Uh, right now, uh, the other sort of 
exciting things that are happening in North Carolina. Um, today, we have two proposals, one in the House and one in the Senate, the state legislature that specifically are dealing with sanctuary policies, quote unquote sanctuary policies. I think that term is very vague and used often and not sort of defined. Um, so I, I don't like to use the term that often, but um, attacking sort of sanctuary policies. And then the other one uh, policy, the other uh, proposal uh, would actually force sheriffs to cooperate with ICE, right? So these are two things that have been heard, um, one on the House floor today, one's expected to be heard on the House floor tomorrow. Um, so these are things that we continue to sort of see happening and not just, I think, in North Carolina, but unfortunately, um, especially, I think, in the South, we see that this is continuing to happen. And I often think about, well, sheriffs clearly aren't doing what they need to be doing when it comes to COVID-19. So why are they spending so much time and effort trying to regulate immigration? Um, so I, I think about these as very connected issues, but also just um, an unfortunate use of some of our taxpayer dollars as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Let's um, kind of back up a little bit because you said some things that maybe people are in their minds thinking about, okay, well, why are we talking about sheriffs and immigration enforcement? Um, yeah. so could you speak a little bit more about why that is the case <laughs> presently? Sure. Yeah. So I think we've sort of seen um, over the course of um, uh, I think some of this really shifts in 1996, where we start to see that local law enforcement agents were sort of um, have the ability to act as ICE enforcement officers. I guess ICE would say that they're deputized. They're not technically ICE enforcement officers, mm -hmm. um, but they're deputized to act as immigration officers, which means often if they're um, deputies within, say, a, a sheriff's office, that they're going to be asking some additional questions of immigrants who are booked into the jail system. Um, and so from there, in 1996, you don't really see that many sort of local law enforcement agencies taking this opportunity to engage in that type of enforcement. Um, but after 9-11, we really do see some of this increase happening, um, partially under this, like, uh, this uh, sort of... Um, uh, like a sort of moral panic around like national security, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we start to see that uh, more sort of sheriff agencies um, are wanting to do this kind of sort of operation within their jails. Um, and like I mentioned before, most of the jails across the country are run by sheriffs. Like that is the law enforcement agency that runs them. And so um, that's where we're going to see most people being identified, at least for the immigration system. Uh, we do have like police officers, which are typically like the city police. Um, they may have sort of their own sort of relationships with ICE, but we often just see it more happening more often within the jail system across the country. Um, so I think we sort of see that increasing um, in the um, sort of forthcoming book and some of my research, I really highlight at least like some like key actors who, um, sheriffs who are basically like, yeah, we want this to go everywhere, right? So we're very adamant about trying to introduce this model across the country and who then get placed on these national and, and federal sort of um, um, task force to figure out how to do this better. Um, and so unfortunately we have some of those folks from North Carolina who join those task force and try to help people understand like you can do this, you can um, assist folks in uh, deporting immigrants throughout the country um, and into different countries as well. And so I think that that's where uh, we start to see that take off. And then I think over time, unfortunately, uh, with the popularization of other types of um, uh, biometric screening or the ability to like send fingerprints mm -hmm. uh, to different agencies, we see sort of that take off across the country. Um, and so uh, often in, in North Carolina, when we have the conversation uh, with sheriffs or we have a conversation about immigration enforcement, we do have sheriffs who, especially in the past, the, the, the most recent years have sort of said, 
well, we don't want to be doing this immigration enforcement thing anymore. Um, and, and that's great, right? It's great that community members have pressured them to take that stance and, and have elected them into office because of that. But what I think people fail to, to understand is that that doesn't mean that people's fingerprints aren't still being sent off uh, to federal agencies or to even state agencies, right? So I think that that's where we, we often see that um, no matter how quote unquote progressive sheriffs are trying to be and trying to minimize their relationship with immigration and customs enforcement, uh, that because of that particular standard of booking everyone into the jail and, and taking their fingerprints, uh, that it's, it's almost impossible for there not to be that particular relationship of sending information to ICE. And so I think that that's where we sort of see that um, sheriffs, that the country doesn't know too much about this because it's just really something that has been going on uh, for extended period of time with, I think, um, limited into like um, interrogation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like family members are the ones who typically like start this interrogation because their loved one is going to be put into deportation proceedings. Um, and, and I think that that's where we see that like community members are the ones who are monitoring this um, in a way that that um, I think we don't have enough monitoring of our lo local law enforcement agencies in the first place, right? So um, I think that that's consistently uh, why we have so many calls for defunding the police, right? So it's like, well, there's an agency here that technically our taxpayer dollars are paying for, right? Um, and yet the accountability question uh, is always there because sometimes they're not actually being forthcoming about what they're doing in communities. Um, if they um, are um, in fact going to have, um, uh, I think uh, cases where uh, they've either uh, had use of force cases or um, right, um, uh, unfortunately, which we know happens all the time, um, if they end up murdering someone, uh, I don't think we have the type of um, accountability that folks are seeking, right? And so I think that that's where we see that uh, immigration enforcement within local law enforcement is just one issue of this bigger question of what is local law enforcement doing in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a big question, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a big question. But I know part of what I see your expertise in is really around this idea of crimmigration, which you kind of touched on a little bit, even though not formally, like, right, using yeah. that term. Uh, but could you talk more about what crimmigration actually is? Yeah, sure. And, and this is more of like the... Um, I guess so legal scholarship or like some of the folks, legal scholars are the folks who sort of first popularized this term, um, which is the criminalization of immigration law and procedure. Um, I think since then, like other folks have taken it on to sort of think about how do we really see this um, intersection of like immigration law, uh, which is typically something that we traditionally have thought of as federal type of law um, versus uh, like criminal law, which uh, yes, has some aspects of uh, the federal sort of government, but is very much applied in like a local setting, right? Mm -hmm. So if you get stopped by a police officer, um, you're going into the criminal justice system that's local um, versus when we're thinking often about sort of the immigration system, most people are going to think about federal, right? And so I think that that's where often the disconnect is. Um, I think many times when I'm talking about sort of this, this particular phenomenon of local law enforcement collaborating with ICE, people always tend to think about it as like, it's a border issue, right? Like it's happening on the Southern border. And it's like, no, it's happening in your backyard, um, unfortunately. Um, and, and so I think it's really important to understand that over time we've sort of seen um, this sort of intersection. And I also, in my sort of research and the way that at least I talk about sort of our immigration um, history in the United States is to also pin point out that 
Um, increasingly, too, we see that uh, immigration or ICE agents start to look a little bit more like law enforcement, right? So it's not until um, around sort of 1990s, I believe, uh, that immigration officers start to carry guns. So it's not right that they initially were not supposed to be this type of um, sort of law enforcement agency. They're really serving more of a sort of civil process, uh, right? So more sort of thinking about um, different types of violations. And so uh, we start to see sort of those like exchanges occurring. And, and I continue, at least in, in some of my work, to think about, well, it actually just doesn't stop in jails either, right? So I, I ultimately want to make the connection that, um, again, to go back to we as taxpayers, right? We pay taxes for many things. Um, the people who are in charge of at least monitoring sheriffs in some ways, monitoring jails, I think are county commissioners, right? Or at least like whoever is in charge of the county um, government. And those folks have a role to play in immigration enforcement. Um, do they often, especially in my research, do they often think about it that way? Absolutely not, right? So they don't, they often, especially when I, I'm having this conversation with some of them, they think about, or at least they respond to these questions of like, what is your role in regulating or what is your role in overseeing some of our, how our money is spent when it comes to law enforcement. They just don't understand how they see themselves in that relationship often. Like often whenever we're asking them to just take a look at how the money is being spent, they're very much like, well, it's not our responsibility. Like we don't tell the sheriff how much money you can and can't spend. It's like, well, you approve the budget. So I don't understand <laughs> how this isn't a clear example of you overseeing this particular agency. Um, so I often think about some of the ways that other, like everyday people can be involved in this process, as well as how our local government either facilitates or by not asking questions is complicit in um, the immigration enforcement practice that we see at the local level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, something you said earlier where people often think, oh, immigration is something or immigration issues are something that's happening somewhere else, especially mm -hmm. on the border, right? Because that's where kind of our imagination of immigration happening, just right. like at our southern border in particular. Uh, and so not seeing how these policies and practices are happening within our own communities. And as you just mentioned, how we are complicit in these practices as well, right? And if it's not, you know, our community or if we don't see ourselves as right. a part of it, then it's easy to just assume, oh, it's happening somewhere else to someone else. You know, what does it matter in my, you know, local community? Right. Right. Uh, but I think you do a great job of showing um, in your research how it is happening in, you know, our local communities, wherever they yeah. may be, very far away from the border or far away from places where we might think of as traditional, you know, immigrant destinations. Right. 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 Um, so we'll talk more about that. But for now, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. So this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Felicia Ariaga, an assistant professor of sociology at Appalachian State University. And we're talking about immigration and in particular, um, local law enforcement and their cooperation with this larger immigration system. And so um, before the break, you were talking about how most of the time people think about immigration um, in a few different ways. One, as kind of this, you know, federal kind of purview. And then two, as being something that's happening on the border. And for places like Memphis, or even where you are in North Carolina, we're far away mm -hmm. <laughs> um, from, you know, the border, thinking about the our, this, our southern borders. But yet in your work, you show how, you know, local law enforcement, where 
wherever they may be, are cooperating and really part of this broader immigration um, system. Um, so could you tell us how is what you're finding, you know, in North Carolina or other um, places, as we think of as non-traditional or new immigrant destinations, how is that maybe different from how we have thought about immigration or what's happening um, around immigration in those, you know, more traditional places like California, Texas, New York? Yeah, um, and I think this is a good question. And the, there's um, one of my favorite things to do, I think, is to talk about this with especially grad students who are like looking into like newer data sets, trying to really follow along some of the policy aspect of this. And I think that this is like where the discipline divide is really interesting to think about like um, how much of how many sociologists are really diving deep into like administrative records. Um, and I think that that's just been interesting to talk with so many other people in different sort of disciplines and different sort of um, areas uh, to think through some of these questions. Um, because I think at some point, especially if we're looking at like New York, California, um, they've actually, a, a lot of the sort of organizers, the activists, the researchers who have been involved in those fights um, have really had to put in, um, I think, innovative practices uh, because immigration enforcement is still happening, right? And so I think that that's where we also um, know that, uh, at least in California, the Truth Act, the Trust Act, and the Values Act, uh, which are all three types of like um, statewide legislative efforts to try to curb immigration enforcement from happening in the state. But if you recognize there's three of them, right? So, um, right, and I think that activists and folks understood after a while that actually this one particular one is not gonna work, right? And so part of it is like unraveling how immigration enforcement is happening and then trying to address that. Um, I think in California too, where we, we tend to, especially in North Carolina, we tend to look at California as this is where we wanna be when it comes to uh, pro-immigration like efforts or, um, and uh, where, we, where we've sort of seen that they've really taken on um, anti-immigrant, or at least like trying to combat anti-immigrant legislation. Um, and so for other people, right, it's it's looking at, okay, well, if there's three different pieces of legislation that you have to get passed in order to try to stop any type of immigration enforcement, uh, then it means that there's a lot going on, right? And, and I think that that's where we have to think about what are the layers there? Um, and I think if you talk to California activists, like, I think that would be very straightforward with that, right? That like, oh, yes, we we thought we were tackling this piece of it, and then something else happened, right? I shifted to try to continue their, their process, right? And I think we were seeing this a lot too, especially in like LA with the sheriff there. Um, I mostly study sheriffs, so that's gonna come out in a lot of this, but um, the sheriff there who somehow was still cooperating with ICE, even though all of these acts had like been passed, right? And so I think we can see that if folks, especially if local law enforcement wants to get around some of these, they're going to do that. Um, and so I think about that often is like, we still see that there are gaps um, in sort of the way that we want to like stop some of this immigration from enforcement from happening. I think in New York, um, we still see sort of like federal ICE teams operating, which means it's like much more of like a federal level um, type of, of like teams that are going out and arresting people, right? And so even though I think, um, obviously the, the New York Police Department has a lot of other issues uh, that it also has to deal with. Um, I, I think that like they probably have like on like a very public stance about right immigration enforcement, right? So it's like, okay, great. Like your public stance means something, but we also know that ICE is actually just gonna come in and try to arrest folks. And so um, there's been like innovative ways that folks there. So like the Vera Institute has a universal representation system for immigrants that they provide free uh, to sort of any, any immigrant who is detained because they recognize that actually if we really wanna stop ICE from coming, 
there really isn't a way to do that, right? There's no way to sort of bar um, a federal agency from coming in to your locality. We've seen, at least in New York too, that right judges have tried to stop them um, from coming into courtrooms, and then they've been uh, right caught in, in other types of cases, right? So they've um, been sort of uh, persecuted in that way too. So I, I think about it often as yes, there are a lot of like differences in the way that it's happening, but we're still seeing immigration enforcement occurring, right? Still, still immigrants are getting arrested. Um, I think Florida was like another example um, that people often think about is like, have they shifted some of their policies? And unfortunately, I think in this moment, um, even though Florida has such a large immigrant population, especially if we think about like Miami, um, other areas of the, of the state, that they've actually started to pilot a newer type of immigration enforcement partnership. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's interesting to see, I think, how it spreads across the country. So this one um, was piloted in 2019. Uh, it's just called the Warrant Service Officer Program. Um, and now we're seeing it crop up um, across the country. Um, so we are seeing now like what, there's a huge advocate in North Carolina who's been promoting this. Um, and so in a place where in North Carolina, where we actively at least fought in 2018 to try to get some of these sheriffs to stop up, to stop cooperating with ICE, we've seen at least this type of program crop up in other counties. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's always a back and forth, right? It's just like, how do you really stop an agency, a federal agency who wants to continue doing this? And that's been created to do this. I often talk about that with my students um, is that we see that Biden is just being handed um, an immigration enforcement system that was under the Trump administration, but was also very effective in doing what it needed to do underneath the Obama administration, right? So I think it's a, that historical trajectory, and I think we're, we're chipping away at it locally because I think we've seen so much inaction at the federal level, right? So I think that that's where during the election last year, um, I, I think if you were to ask a lot of the folks who have been doing this work for so long, whether or not we see sort of a pathway to change, obviously some things were gonna change. I believe the last time I checked, there was um, like 450 or so executive orders pertaining to immigration underneath the Trump administration. And so at least some of those are being walked back. So I'm not saying that things are completely the same, but I'm also saying that it's a system that has been here, is meant to last. And I think for us, it's really been, let's attack at the local level while we, we figure out if there is going to be any sort of opportunities for substantial change at the federal level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it seems like even just listening to you talk and, and kind of trying to keep up with some of the recent cases, like the recent Supreme Court um, ruling, um, it seems that there's so much individual discretion, right? So whether it's right. sheriffs or judges in, you know, immigration court, so much individual discretion, yet also an inability to use that discretion for good, so right. to speak. Right. Um, so even though sheriffs or especially thinking about judges and their ability to you right. Know, stay right, um, that they're not able to use that again, thinking about this system that has been created, that's very effective at deporting people right. once they get involved in the system. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's where. Um, so I, I, I work both with sort of immigrant rights groups in North Carolina and with um, a, a police and prison abolitionists. Um, and so for us, it's really sort of making that connection that um, whatever happens in the system to anyone, right? Like, let's try to prevent them getting into the system in the first place, right? So let's try to prevent that, um, like, less profiling, right? Like, that's sort of the first step for some of this. And so it's really about sort of thinking about how to, um, I think, weaken the hold that local law enforcement has on our communities 
uh, because what we don't want them to go to do is to enter into the system in the first place because unfortunately like you're mentioning right like we know that people are held in pre-child detention for a long time. We know that, especially with some of these proposals coming out, especially in states in the South, um, that even if they are maybe done uh, with their, or held after pre-child detention, especially for immigrants, they may be held extra time for ICE to come pick them up, right? And um, so these are all sort of pieces of this puzzle of, well, yeah, we can try to stop them from getting to the criminal justice in the first place, while we're also like combating right criminalization of our communities, right? So it's not like I'm saying that this is a simple answer. We know that like our communities are gonna continue to be criminalized. Um, and so it, it's more about like, how do we provide alternatives? And for many of the communities that I work with, the alternative is completely getting rid of law enforcement. Um, and I think that that's like one aspect that especially immigrant rights groups um, that I've been working with have had to like really, I think tackle and start into, into sort of, um, uh, I think sit with, right? So think about like, right, it's actually not enough to just get rid of an immigration enforcement partnership that um, you, that doesn't mean that you're also not gonna get arrested and spend time in jail, right? So, so I think that that's been an interesting way for us to think through the connection between the criminal justice system and the immigration system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you touched on something important there because so much of this does hinge on criminalization of black and brown communities in particular. Uh, and so when you have these, not only the legal processes that have been merged together, but also these attitudes and beliefs that have also merged around immigrants in particular, right? So this I, overarching idea that immigrants are bad, especially if we're talking about black and brown immigrants, that they're right. Threat, and then how those attitudes then make it that much more difficult for you know folks in power who wanted to take a more you know pro-immigration stance. How it makes it much more difficult because then you're seen as someone who's supporting right all these people we should be scared of or who are taking our jobs right yeah. all those familiar tropes right that you're uh, you're somehow <laughs> facilitating the right. demise of our entire country. <laughs> So we see a lot of that happening as well. Um, so I, you mentioned that there are kind of multi-pronged approaches on the local level, right? So some of which you mentioned, so thinking about how um, potentially like impacting profiling, right? Or lessening, you know, the ways that people get involved in the justice system or criminal justice system in the first place. Um, but what are some of the other approaches that you've seen, um, whether in your own, you know, local area or other areas taking that have been effective? Effective at stopping um, like ICE arrests and yes. enforcement? Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, I think some of the things that, especially I think in Tennessee too, one of the organizations, the Tennessee Immigrant Rights uh, Coalition, Turk, I forget, I forget what the full name is, but Turk um, also does these things, which is like community defense. Um, and, and so that's one way for us, I think, to again, um, make sure that like our community is being held together because I, I often think about, um, I think about, there's some cases when I've like gone home or gone to different communities and I'm like on um, our text thread of like, oh, we think ICE is in the area and trying to support community members by interrupting um, and, and which very much draws from like the, uh, again, mostly on the criminal justice side of like violence interrupters, right? Or at least cop watch programs. Um, so I just like wanna continue to make that connection there that some of these like opportunities uh, to intervene have very much been replicated from people who have been doing this on the criminal justice side for a long time. Um, but I just think about sort of like the community defense or ice watching programs that many communities have sort of um, really developed, I think, especially in the South, because um, I guess I didn't even start here, but 
thinking about, especially if it's happening with ICE agents or local law enforcement, that the South has a long history of uh, police and law enforcement uh, brutality, uh, right, dating, dating back many, many years, right? Um, so I think that these types of programs um, are often ones that I'm always interested in thinking about because it also has like a very community aspect, right? So um, I think at the end of the day, if we're able to um, come together as community members and to say, actually, this person doesn't belong in our community, we don't know who this person is. Um, and at one point we were also like tracking license plates of ICE cars, right? So like, I think these like strategies like we've developed over time um, really also empower community members uh, to take on this on their own, especially if, as we started, started, started talking about this at the beginning, especially if they don't trust government officials, right? Like, and that means any sort of state um, sort of actors in, in that respect too. And so one of the things that I often think about is this community aspect, partially um, because there's like instances in my mind where I'm like, oh, wow, like, if this person was a member of a community, I wonder how much more effective we could have been in stopping their deportation. Um, and I say that um, just because I think that this probably happened a few years ago in my head now. Um, time feels very <laughs> abstract at this point. But um, my, my family is from Western North Carolina. Um, I come from a mixed status family. So members of my family are immigrants. Um, and so uh, there was a report of ICE in our community um, and uh, at this time I was, I was in Boone, so I was still two hours away, but um, I write about this and try to write about it a bit more now, um, but that like every time I get that report, like I just have such a sinking feeling in my like body that that this is happening, right, to community members, to people that I potentially know um, in communities. And so I ended up going back to support some of the community groups who were um, tracking down ICE, videotaping all of this stuff. Um, and I think whenever we do those types of trainings um, of ICE Watch, one of the things that I learned early on was that we may never actually know the resolution. Mm. Um, and that's really, um, again, important, I think, for folks who are wanting to volunteer to recognize. And part of that is because Sometimes if people have not been in the community that long, of in, in this particular case, we actually didn't know everyone's first and last name who had been arrested by ICE. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't really a way for us to track down like whose family member did, do we know that needs to know that their family member was being arrested, right? Um, and I think that that's unfortunate and, and often the case, right? That sometimes this is happening and we don't even know it, right? And I think that that's like the feeling for me is always that um, that level of insecure, like insecurity of what is going on around us. Um, I think we, we see this, right, not just for ICE arrest, but for any arrest, right? So, um, and unfortunately, um, in some circumstances, those have come to light, but how many years does it often take for us to know that that thing happened or for some footage to be released, right? So again, it goes back to this sort of question of um, how does our community sort of fit together and support each other and what does that mean for like watching this agency that has sort of um, a history of abuses, right? So, and to continue just to think about what does community trust look like if you have ICE officers coming into the communities or if you have um, maybe law enforcement coming into communities, right? And so I think that that's often um, where I tend to go whenever we're sort of thinking about um, like what's going on in our local communities. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's so important. One, this idea of seeing ourselves as part of a community. Um, and I think over this past year, in many ways, people have begun to think about themselves as part of a community in different ways than, you know, pre-COVID, right? Right. Um, so I think that's, you know, one kind of outcome of COVID, like rethinking what is community and what is my role in, mm -hmm. you know, contributing to a community, keeping people safe, right? Not just health, but also... Um, other safety right that we're talking about in this context and how do we actually build the type of community trust that's necessary in order to participate maybe if it is in you know some sort of ice watch right and looking out right. for community members or you know trying to be observers in some way um, and hold people hold you know state agents accountable which can be right. a very big ask right and feel very overwhelming <laughs> in yeah well yeah, I think so. And, but it's also about, I think, um, I often, especially out in Western North Carolina, um, right, there's a lot of white people. And I'm just like, your role as a white person can be to um, monitor these agencies, right? It's not just the agencies, but it's also, right, your city and county government. I think that that's where it comes into play, because I think, especially, I think, when Trump got elected, so many folks were looking for, like, we're getting newly politically engaged, right? I think is the way that we talk about it often, right? Especially from the, like, academic perspective, right? It's like, these are new people who haven't been activated before, which is always just a funny sort of way to think about it. Um, but uh, there's, like, so many people who are like, let's do something, right? And so I think this is where we start to see that, actually, let's give these folks some responsibilities that's still centering the people who are most directly impacted, right? I think that that's um, unfortunately, a lot of the conversations I have with community groups, especially like well-meaning white people who are in these community groups is that, yes, people probably need your support, but that doesn't mean you need to do it for them, right? And so I think that that's one thing that um, we continue to at least like think about, especially in like coalition spaces in North Carolina, is that the people who should be setting the direction are the ones who are most directly impacted, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and those are typically sort of, especially in our immigrant sort of rights coalition, like those are gonna be immigrants themselves mm -hmm. um, who should be sort of setting the agenda. So if they're saying that we're gonna do an action uh, at the state legislature because this is a super racist anti-immigrant bill, then we're going to follow that, right? And, and so I think that that's where um, seeing people, I think get really like upset or at least like politically motivated under the Trump administration, um, I'm hoping that that continues and that those folks are also willing to take direction, right? I think that that's where we don't need more sort of like white people setting the agendas that clearly have been setting the agendas for a long time. Um, and I think that goes across sort of, um, I guess like political identities too, because I think that that's often where, where people um, have often sort of been like, well, these people are liberal, they're, they're well-meaning. And I was like, you can be the most well-meaning person, but if you actually aren't, I think, holding the folks that you elect, um, if you're not holding them accountable, then you're, in my, in my view, again, just as complicit as folks who maybe were actively trying to stop people from thriving in these community settings too. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think that is such an important point to remember that even though we may all have a role to play or a way to contribute, that we have to follow the direction of the folks who are you know, most affected, right? Or being directly affected by these different policies. Um, and of course, we can all find a way to, again, be supportive of that, but to right. follow the direction of the people who are being impacted versus um, trying to take on that role of, you know, I know best or we know best. Right. Um, because that doesn't actually get us, get right. us where 
where we need to go. Yeah. And I often think about it too, is like once, because I think too, the, the important part of that is that if that issue doesn't directly impact that person, then potentially that person gets burnt out and they leave, right? Because it doesn't directly impact them, but we still have the actual problem, right? That's gonna continue for the people who have been directly impacted. And for, I think so much of my development and so much of my research was really going to community events, seeing, um, especially seeing, seeing a, a crew of women in uh, the Raleigh-Durham area um, which is like one of, one of our bigger our bigger cities in, in North Carolina, seeing those women um, very much talking about how, how their son or their family member was deported, right? And that's why they started to do this work. Um, and, and so I think that that's always like central to um, like who I feel accountable to when I'm doing this research and when I'm doing sort of community organizing is the people who have, have already sort of experienced this and are the ones who are willing to risk their own sort of life and safety to change the conditions for other people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and just thinking about that, thinking about how people get involved and why they stay involved, um, how did you get involved in this research? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I, I mentioned before that like some members of my family are immigrants. Um, and so it's been something that we've talked about like on and off over like, like me growing up. Um, but I think like I didn't quite sort of start to like make some of the connections until I like started to do some of my dissertation research. Um, and um, I really just started going to these local community meetings. Um, and by, I guess I should rephrase that, that they were not community meetings in the sense of like community meetings, like, hey, let's have community members out. Uh, they're actually these, they're called 287G steering committee meetings. Um, so it's this type of immigration enforcement partnership that's hosted by the sheriff's office in various parts of, of the country um, where ICE comes in to tell them like, this is how many people we've deported out of your county. Um, this is what it looks like, just like some more specifics. And so I just happened to go to one. I don't actually recall like why I went to this first meeting, um, but I went to one and it's actually just me in the room. Um, and so it's very interesting experience to be a brown person in this space with a bunch of white ICE officers and sheriff's deputies. Um, and so from there, it was just like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, I don't, I don't quite know what's going on here, but um, I'm interested in sort of like what is happening mm -hmm. um, in these meetings. And so I started to go to a bunch of these across the state of North Carolina. At the same time, I was working with community groups. Most of my sort of community um, engagement, um, I, I did like some community engagement when I was in high school, when I was younger, um, but most of my sort of um, pretty like concerted effort with community groups actually started when I was in undergrad. Um, I was interning with a group called Student Action with Farm Workers. Um, both of my parents were farm workers and we were growing up. So we were moving back and forth between Florida and North Carolina. Um, and so it was an aspect of like my identity that I was able to explore by sort of advocating in this space. And I actually, um, first my sort of responsibilities there were to support um, in-state tuition campaigns for undocumented students. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to learn alongside people who were my age, but who just couldn't go to college because of the barriers that we've put in place as a country for undocumented individuals. Um, and so that I think like at least sparked some of my interest in what other types of sort of um, immigration enforcement policies or just immigration sort of issues are we not sort of seeing that we can actually impact at a local and sort of a state level. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of how I started looking into these immigration enforcement aspects. Um, and then from there, um, it sort of continued into various sort of avenues. Um, most of the time now we, um, we actually sort of just formalized a new coalition in North Carolina um, 
around immigration uh, rights. Um, so we've sort of been collectively trying to figure out like, how do we do this? Like, how do we stop these types of state legislative um, issues? And eventually, how do we actually get some good legislation in, mm -hmm. uh, right? And, and so I think that that's like where I started just really putting together the pieces um, it sort of helped and didn't help most of the time. It sort of just like created traumatic experiences for me uh, that one of the like field sites, quote unquote, like one of the places that I was going back to to, to look at this particular um, immigration enforcement partnership was my hometown, mm -hmm. right? So a place I had grown up in, I, I was born in Western North Carolina, um, born and raised there and just didn't know that this particular enforcement partnership um, was like, very much moving ahead as I like went to college in, Dur in Durham, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, now like most of my time, I really just look at administrative records, which maybe isn't that exciting to people. <laughs> but to me, it's super exciting because unfortunately you can see this history playing out in front of you. And so mm -hmm. um, looking through sort of like 10 years of administrative records for five counties across the state of North Carolina and really seeing that in those records, you can also see county commissioners uh, who again are in charge of this relationship with the sheriff um, very much being explicit in their anti-immigrant views like they were not afraid to hide it I think even today there's plenty of folks who are not afraid right to hide their anti-immigrant anti-immigrant sentiments and so it's just been sort of more fuel for me to think about this as like uncovering these histories of these counties mm -hmm. and at the same time making sure that the folks who live in those communities understand both sort of like how it operates and what they can do about it. So I very much sort of see my role now as much more sort of advisory to folks who are interested in figuring this out a bit more. Um, I sort of work with some national coalitions as well um, to really sort of push on this. And again, through this, I really started to get more interested in sort of like, where does this money go, right? So the federal agency is giving these communities money to do this. Um, why aren't we sort of more suspect or more sort of like interested in that? And so, so much of my work to now, especially like my community work is really focused on following the money and understanding how law enforcement benefits from these types of federal partnerships and how communities can also dive into that. So uh, lately we've been doing these like campaign finance workshops. We've been doing these like know your local law enforcement budgets. Uh, for community members so that they can start to really understand and dive into that aspect as we sort of see at the national level, folks pushing for defunding the police um, and thinking of alternatives, right? I think some of the other languages divest invest. So where do we want like our communities to invest that money is very much, I think, central to this understanding of immigration, but also like just, again, law enforcement itself and the sort of bloated budgets that we see these agencies continue to get even though other types of services within our local communities continue to get cut, especially, well, I think we're kind of going to continue to see that during COVID-19, right? So this year, whenever we see sort of local community budgets come out, we're going to see that plenty of support services are going to be cut because people are going to say there's not money for that, but I guarantee you the money is not going to come out of the local law enforcement budgets. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, what you said about looking through all these administrative records, it might not be the sexiest thing, but it's so important because those are, that tells the story, right? That tells the story of changes that have been happening in these different, in, in your communities, but also, you know, wherever folks may be listening from, you know, we could look at those same records, right? In our own um, areas and see the same story, right? Right. Uh, 
um, immigration enforcement. And I think it's just so true. If you want to know what people's priorities are, follow the money. And that's going to tell you the story. I think a lot of people you know, we're really surprised to see their own local budgets around law enforcement. I know right. that was, you know, as we've, as conversations around defund the police or, you know, divest invest have been, you know, circulating, especially over the past year. And we've seen so many, you know, counties, you know, their budgets, right. And right. people have been absolutely astounded to see how much money local law enforcement is getting versus any other and all right. other, you know, combined social services. I think, you know, always follow the money. It tells you so much. Right. Um, so yes. So we're going to take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're back on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm here with Dr. Felicia Ariaga, And we've been talking about immigration enforcement, especially thinking about it on the local level. And yes, that means even in places here like Memphis, Tennessee, or in local places or local counties across North Carolina, where Dr. Ariaga does a lot of her work. Um, but let's just kind of ask this broad question as we're thinking forward, right? So based on your own research, how should we be rethinking whether it's immigration policy, procedure, or even, you know, local law enforcement? Yeah. I think that there's been a coalition of folks who I mentioned earlier on in the conversation, um, this 1996 law, um, which we often refer to as IRA-IRA, but stands for the Legal Immigration Reform Responsibility Act. That really, I think, sets up um, so much of this along with the um, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. So both of those acts really, I think, set the stage for what we think of as like the current criminalization of immigration. Um, and so there's a group of folks across the country who have really been trying to push for what's called like fix 96, right? So um, in to some regard, I think not fix it, but really get rid of it, uh, right? So like, let's let's undo these things that have continued to like deport folks um, unjustly and, and without sort of proper um, um, processes throughout the court system, right? Um, so some folks have really been pushing on that um, to try to think about like, how do we actually go back to this particular um, legislation that has really sort of changed the direction for us? I think that that's one aspect of thinking like, what do we do in the future, right? How do we do this? Um, I mentioned before that I think folks have been very um, uh, disheartened, I think, by the federal landscape. And that's why so many groups, I think, have, have moved to the local. Um, and, uh, and, and particularly in places like the South where we know that like um, uh, Republican uh, uh, leadership is gonna continue to have a stronghold at the state level. That means that like, if you have especially like no inaction at the federal level, you have potentially at the state level, um, folks who are not gonna be willing to lessen their relationships with ICE, um, you really have to go to the local level, right? And think about sort of like local um, challenges. And so I think we continue to see that community groups have put this pressure on local law enforcement, on their local government uh, to not only sort of stop some of these types of immigration enforcement partnerships, um, but to also like try to um, create measures to better um, support immigrants in their communities, right? So um, I think we continue to see that. And I think that that's where, especially in the South, that's giving so many folks hope. So um, last year in the elections, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a group of folks who were pressuring their sheriff to get rid of their immigration enforcement partnership. Um, so when, when the new sheriff got elected, um, she's gotten rid of it. 
Um, we saw that happen in a few places in Georgia, um, thanks to a bunch of the folks uh, with um, a, a few coalition partners there in Georgia. So we're seeing that communities are really taking up this call to pressure some of that um, types of immigration enforcement to end. Um, and I think that those are the folks that I learned the most from, partially too, because um, some of those folks are working alongside folks who are also doing that defund or divest campaign, right? And so I think that that's where we're seeing the ability for so much local change is when we're seeing sort of these this collaboration happening, where we know folks are both sort of tackling the immigration side of things, but are also at the same time tackling these questions of accountability for law enforcement agencies. Um, so that's sort of like what I continue to come back to um, for us to sort of really think about how do we, like we have the power to do these things, right? Where we like, and often we just don't, I wouldn't say we don't use it. I, I, I would like to say that like, we're not privy to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I often, with my students, I, I often feel like I'm, I'm teaching like, um, civics one-on-one -on -one to them every time we have yeah. a class. Um, because that's knowledge that we like, we, we get at a very young age. And then because we don't often ask our students to apply it, it's not something that they're going to continue on learning, right? And so when I teach my classes, I'm asking them to attend a city council meeting, attend a county commissioner meetings. One of my classes, they typically have to look at their city uh, budgets and uh, look at their police and sheriff budgets because I think that that's a that's a that's a being a responsible community member, right? Um, and so I don't fault them for not having that knowledge. I, I sort of fault our understanding of what's applicable and useful for them as they're going through their K through 12 education. Um, but I, I think that that's one aspect too, is really sort of thinking about how do we do this political education to our community members so that they can actually create their own um, life, their own sort of what they want their community to be is the way that I sort of think about this. So I think that those are efforts that we continue to see happening. I don't think that some of these um, shifts of divest invest across the country would have happened um, if, those community groups weren't working so deeply on educating other community members, right? So um, I don't think at the end of the day, those folks are just like holding just the city council's feet to the fire. They are doing that, but ultimately a lot of those goals are also like, let's tell our community members what's going on so that they're better informed, right? And so I think that that's where we're seeing a lot of um, great effort like across the country where people are really starting to recognize oh, right, actually, I do have power, like, and, and leaning into that power um, that they hold over government officials. And so I think that, like, that's what gives me hope. And I think from there, then maybe we work to the state level, we work to the federal level. Um, I mean, I, I won't say that, I mean, I will say that, right, we do know that Biden can do a lot of things, right? The federal government can do a lot of things. Um, but I think we're also realistic about what is going to happen. Um, and, and so I think in that respect, um, I think the possibilities are very much localized. I think that, um, right, there's possibilities right now at the, at the federal level to think about the Dream and Promise Act of 2021. Um, and I think folks are getting excited about some of that. Um, and I also have to like make sure to point out that that's still only going to protect a, a percentage of the undocumented folks in uh, the United States, right? And so, so I think that to the extent that we're providing sort of legislation that might protect folks, unless we get rid of this immigration enforcement system, which is so tied up into the criminal justice system, um, I, I don't know how people can drive around without sort of the fear of going into deportation proceedings, right? So, uh, and I think that that's like what we've seen uh, time and time again, that some of these sort of um, 
legislative approaches or executive orders are very flimsy and going to right continue to waver, especially if we then switch back to the Republican Party, right, um, in the next sort of administration. So um, I think that that's why I, I don't, I can't let myself get excited sometimes about like federal legislation, um, because at the end of the day, it's actually like, how does this trickle down to states and to the local level? And if there isn't a monitoring agency, I think this is one of the things that Biden was trying to implement was some kind of like agents monitoring for ICE, um, which I think is like a good, that is a good push, I think, in this moment, um, because it, and, and sort of put out some directives on um, some revised priorities of, of people who could be deported. And at the same time, what was being asked for was the into ICE, right? So it's sort of like, okay, this is a partial win, right? Or at least like even having these conversations about the, the Dream and Promise Act, um, pushing for uh, more sort of provisions and safeties when it comes to the Dream Act um, and to uh, Deferred Action Childhood Arrivals. I think that those are definitely wins that are all community-based wins, right? Community has been pushing those wins. Um, and at the same time, it's also assuming that the government is gonna do what they're saying they're gonna do, right? And I think that that's unfortunately, especially in the research, was one of the hardest things for me to come to terms with was that I had these ICE officers talking to community members and sheriffs and local law enforcement talking to these community members saying they don't uh, cooperate with ICE, especially the local law enforcement in certain places. And then we would pull the records, right? We would either request um, public information uh, from them or we would go to some other agency and get the information about sort of their ICE collaboration and some of them would be lying. Yeah. And so I think that for me, it's also like I've become very jaded in some ways about that because there aren't there's, there's not great transparency when it comes to these things. Um, and I think that that's at the local level, again, why it all comes down to accountability. Right. So um, for any, I think, type of policy that we're wanting to see in the future, we, we definitely need to make sure that we're holding those folks accountable. It's great to get something passed, but we also still have to think about how is it being implemented? What are the results? I think that that's more so, I've, I've learned way more about policy and a lot of like my work, um, just to sort of remind myself that this was passed, this was proposed, we're, that it's all, it's all good, quote unquote, at this point. Um, but what, what, how, what's the implications like five years down the road, right? So have they actually been fulfilling those goals that they've set out to do. Um, and I think that that's uh, where so much of this is people, it, it, it like became immigration enforcement happened at the local level. People initially sort of saw it and, and tried to at least like stop some of it. And then it became so normalized in some ways that we didn't sort of, we weren't able to pick back up and see it until I think very recently where we've been able to I think really make some um, changes at the local level. So um, yeah, so, so I think it's both sort of thinking about like what's possible at the federal level, realistically possible at the federal level given the makeup of our Congress and the way people have voted in the past and what is actually possible at the local level with like people power, right? So how do we get enough people on board for this idea to actually substantially shift what's going on at the local level too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even though there's so much to do and so many, you know, moving parts, I think what is most exciting about everything you said is that 
on the local level, we do have a lot of power, right? We have a have the power to get other community members engaged, but also to hold our elected officials accountable and also to just know the information so we can make more informed asks and informed decisions around even who we're voting for, who we're electing, and then what they do once they're actually in office. So I think it's always good to think about the, like you said, the power that we do have, um, you know, to dust off that civics 101 from <laughs> K through 12 and to remember, right, that we actually do have a lot of power over our communities and that we can continue to build on that power and hopefully do some good along the way. Right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Felicia Ariaga, for joining us here this morning. It has been such a delight to have you here, and you've definitely downloaded a lot of really important information for us to think about and hopefully to get involved in our local community as well. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you, and um, yeah, just go see what's going on in your local community. I think that that's probably the takeaway from um, most of my research and most of my time in communities is that Unfortunately, so much of this is happening in our backyards and we really sort of need to be um, monitoring, I think, monitoring it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Felicia Ariaga for joining us this morning. As always, I learned so much from my guests and I know that you learned a lot today as well. I think for today's positive note, I just wanna reiterate what Dr. Ariaga said, which is that on the local level, we have so much power in our communities. So definitely let's use that power for good. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.5. 7 FM. I can't wait to have you back here with me next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.